patience still in chapter 2, but by God's grace we should finish this chapter this evening. It's good to see all you who have come out and uh, fear, fearful stand against the heat. I tell you what, this is uh, Las Vegas for sure, isn't it? Yeah, we're in chapter 2. We didn't have class last week, so I'll give just a very brief review to keep us, get us up to date, uh, up to mind here. Uh, and uh, if you have that little handout that I gave you, as I told you when I handed it out, I'd be using it from time to time as a review, and it pictures worth 10,000 words, they say. And uh, if you notice, this is our fourth church now. We've seen the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and now tonight, Thyrathera. And uh, this is the uh, one listed there, I have penciled in the corrupt church. That's a title given by the Bible teacher over there in California. Forget his name right off. It's not that important. And um, this uh, church is a continual sacrifice. You say, well, what in the world kind of a, a meaning is that? What kind of a name is that? Well, you'll see when we get this lesson uh, in tonight. It covers a period of what we call the Dark Ages, and the characteristics of this church is doctrinal corruption, empty profession, and papal domination. Uh, we're going to see the results of our last study as we studied Pergamos. And in that church, we, we saw that the... Uh, thank you. I tell you what, she's been picking up after me for 66 years, and uh, I'm thinking about giving her a raise, <laughs> if she stays faithful for another 50 years or so. But uh, last week, as we looked at the Smyrna, we saw the marriage of the church to the world, Constantine uh, made Christianity legal, and they came from the catacombs into the big palaces of the heathen gods, false gods, the big temples, and many of the big buildings that they had were taken over by the Christians. And uh, there's a rapid growth because worldliness had come into the church and with it, many of their false doctrines and many of the false teachings, uh, of course, accompany that. Now, this evening, as we look to the uh, uh, church at Thyrathera, first let's look a little bit about the assembly, as we do each week. The church itself is located about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. Actually, it's located about halfway between Pergamos and Sardis, our next church of study. And uh, it, it was not as big as the first three cities. However, this church gets a longer letter than the other three churches. That's kind of strange in a way. 
uh, but it's true. If you count the verses, you'll see that to be a fact. Now, uh, this city was a center for uh, the trades, different trades, coppersmiths, tanners, uh, and one of dyeing. That's not dyeing to dye death, but dyeing clothes uh, into different colors. And uh, the water around Thyrathera was so adapted to the dyeing that uh, in no other place could they dye the Turkish purple which was used in the royal robes and had a very, very beautiful colored uh, cloth. And uh, it was dyed here more permanently and perfectly than any other place. Uh, You may recall some of your uh, Bible studies in the book of Acts in chapter 16, uh, where you met the lady Lydia, who was the seller of purple from the city of Thyrathera. This was her hometown. She was there on business in Philippi. Paul answered the Philadelphia, uh, 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 the call to, from to, to Troas, went across to Philadelphia, uh, excuse me, and anyhow, he went across and met uh, Lydia there, the seller of purple, and she was saved, and many of her household followed her in scriptural baptism. Now, the next verse, that's verse number one. Let's just read that verse. And unto the angel of the church in Thyrathera write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, I, I mentioned that the way that Christ identifies himself to each of the churches is a very key thing to take note of. Uh, it tells you something about his purpose, his message uh, for this uh, lesson. And uh, he calls, he identifies himself as the Son of God. Now think about who we're going to be looking at this time during these dark ages from 600 to 1500 BC or AD and uh, realize that this is a, a period of time of Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church gets its birth here. It had the seed planted uh, back in uh, Smyrna. Uh, we saw there, we mentioned then, that the seed for the church was planted in the, uh, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which were the uh, teachings of those who separated the clergy from the laity, uh, the, or rather the, uh, the laity, yeah, the la- clergy from the laity, and that the clergy begin to rule over the people. And now we see that developing further, as well as the sins that have come into the church. It's very popular now to be a Christian, and there's no persecution. You know, the church did better under persecution. It was under persecution that they talk about how that the, the apostles turned the world upside down with that gospel when they were cutting their heads off and torturing them, burning them at the stake and so forth, the, the work of God prospered and, and grew. Now we have no persecutions to speak of as far as the formal church goes, the world church. Uh, what uh, you'll read, a lot of writers calling this Christendom. Christendom is not all Christian. 
Christendom is a title that comes into being now, and it, and it describes everybody who says they are a Christian. It belongs to Christendom. But Christianity are those who, of course, know Christ as their Savior. Now, he, he says here, uh, during this rapid growth of Romanism, uh, how did the, the church has grown, and, and he's, he's rebuking the church here uh, with this name, the Son of God, because Christ is, is, is uh, kept down in a human sense <coughs> as the Son of Mary, uh, the baby Jesus as you often hear him referred to today. And uh, Mary, in reverse of that, Christ is brought down and Mary is brought up. And now you begin to hear him worshiping the Queen of Heaven. Briefly, seldom, but sometimes you hear him using that title today. The Mother of God. I've heard that today. But if you go back to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 44, and begin studying in verse 15 and throughout that chapter, you'll see that God condemned this business of worshiping uh, the queen of heaven as they are promoting this uh, false prophet uh, who's in their church, who's uh, represented by this woman here. But Christ wanted them to know that they were not dealing now with the Old Testament prophet like Moses or Elijah or a New Testament apostle like Peter or John or, or Paul, uh, but they were dealing with the Son of God. They were dealing with deity, with Christ incarnate, uh, dealing with God himself. Uh, they made Jesus popular. Uh, as the son of Mary, but uh, he's truly Jesus, the co-eternal and co-equal son of God. He is the same as God. He is as the father, so is the son. Uh, In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, how did a virgin shall conceive and bear a son? That's true. That's speaking of Mary, the virgin, bearing the son. That's Jesus. But Two chapters later, in chapter 9 and verse 6, it says that a a child is born, a son is given. Now, you need to really think about that. A child is born, that's the beginning. That's the incarnation. That's when God became man. Emmanuel, God with us, that is Jesus of Nazareth who was born. A son was given, that's Christ, that's eternal. That's the, he has no birth, he has no beginning, he is eternal God. And they emphasize the fact that uh, he is uh, an earthly child of Mary in essence. Now, they don't completely refute the teachings of uh, Jesus being the Son of God, but they just do not teach it as they should. They minimize it. Uh, They teach you that now you must pray to Mary in order to get to God. 
where the Bible teaches that you pray to God in the name of the Son. And, and we are a priesthood of believers. We don't believe in a, a, a Roman Catholic priesthood that uh, officiates and able to forgive you for your sins at confession and so forth and, and does certain rituals and so forth that only they can do. Uh, that's not taught in the Bible. Uh, that's a, a semblance to that in the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament uh, religion. Uh, but uh, they they get that mixed up. They bring that over, but they go back beyond the the Old Testament. They go back way back to 2000 BC uh, to the old Babylonian uh, Empire to get many of their doctrines and their false teachings. But uh, here. Uh, he goes on and identifies himself not only as the Son of God, but notice in his same verse, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire. Remember, he's describing himself. He wants them to know that he has all-seeing eyes. Jesus looks at not just the only the outward, he looks at the inward. He knows the heart of man. And... Uh, uh, he, he knew who his uh, betrayers would be. He knew who, who his true followers would be. And there was no fooling God. And uh, there's no fooling God today either. There never has been a time when you could fool God. Uh, he teaches that uh, you uh, must believe that he is in a, uh, a one who sees everything. One... Uh, writer called him the divine heart knower. That's, that's true. He not only knows your life, the things you do, and the things you should do that you don't do. That's a sin of commission, a sin of omission. Uh, that's what that is. Things you do is saying sins of commission uh, that you shouldn't do, and the things you should do that you don't do, that's a sin of omission. You're going to be judged by, for both of those, by the way. Uh, if if you don't have Christ as your Savior, you're going to have to account for yourself, and uh, you'll have a poor standing in that day uh, if you don't know Christ. Uh, he has these eyes that see. He knew all men. Uh, he knew what was in man. John tells us, and he goes on and says that Jesus knows uh, uh, the beginning. Who were they that believed not and who should betray him? In John 6, 64. The Lord that knowest all things. I, I often think of, when I think of this uh, business of God knowing all things, I, I like to go back to that passage in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Where those scriptures tell us that all things are naked before God. You, think, you realize that and you, you'll learn something. All things, the, what you think are the hidden things from God, you can't hide from God. There's no place you can go and there's no place you could cover yourself with or no thing you could cover yourself with. Uh, John describes him further as saying that his feet are like fine brass. All this is in the first verse there in verse 18. Brass, as we mentioned before, and I'll tell you again, in Scripture is a symbol of judgment. And uh, the description of him having 
uh, his, his feet as of like fine brass, his judgments are going to be strong. And not only will his judgments be strong, but his judgments are also uh, going to be righteous and uh, no, no mistakes. Thank God today we live in a day of grace. But uh, there's coming a day of judgment. This church is about to get some judgment. Uh, and a little bit later, another verse or two, we're going to see it. He gives first the approval in verse number 19. Uh, there are some six different approvals that are mentioned here. He says, I know thy works in charity. I put those two together because uh, he's going to mention works again in this same verse. But uh, their works was a, a work of love. Uh, they didn't do what they did because they had to do it. He says, I know the works of thy charity and your charity. Uh, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, uh, which is given unto us and as Christians. Therefore, when we serve God, there ought to be a love of God portrayed in that. I see some Christians walk around like they've been... Uh, Raised on a lemon and weaned on a prune. I think that's what they used to say. Uh, I mean, they're down. I mean, nothing good about anything or anyone. And they're bitter. And they're uh, somewhat cantankerous, argumentative. And they call themselves Christians. That's not being a Christian, folks. A Christian is one who shows love. A Christian is one who, who has love that, that is patient with one another and foresee and oversees their faults. Uh, not that you condone them, but that you do not judge them in the sense that you being their judge. You love them in spite of their shortcomings. Uh, it is uh, called by the Apostle Paul the greatest of the Christian characteristics this matter of love. Uh, love is very important to have as a child of God. He says, further, I know thy service. And here he's, he's speaking of their ministry. Their ministry, that is in, uh, the love in action, uh, in love doing the things that they should do. They, they had a ministry, if not merely a mechanical function of a job they had to do, but uh, they were responsible, but they were tender and loving and unofficially, uh, uh, unofficial kindness was shown. Uh, he then appears, uh, or rather approves them for their uh, faith. He says, I know thy faith. Uh, these, these saints were dependable, is what he's saying here. Some Christians run well, you know, at the outset of the race, but they're, they, they're like the uh, Galatians. So soon, if you turn from the gospel, uh, there's no other gospel. And uh, yet some who start well. You've seen them in this day. Uh, people who come forward and profess Christ as their Savior and, and they even follow the Lord in baptism. Uh, but uh, a matter of a week or two or three later or a month, you couldn't find them if you were a, detect, a detective. Uh, I mean, it's a shame. Uh, but not these Christians. 
These Christians had a, had a faithfulness about them. They had a ministry. They had a faith that was sound and strong. He says next that, that I know thy patience. Patience. Uh, the Lord commended them for their uh, patience because he sets a great value on people that have patience. Again, you know, I wonder if we have that kind of capacity that people see patience, Christian patience in our life. That's, that's when everything is gone upside down and sideways and nothing seems to be going right and you have peace of God that passes understanding. Peace that the world does not know. But we as Christians know and can have. And, and God likes to see that in his children. He likes to see those steady eddies. Those ones who start well and continue well. It's a, it's a blessing, I know, having pastored uh, to, to see that in Christians who come and make a profession of faith and, and then follow the Lord steadfastly. Uh, I, I thank God for that. But then he goes on, he says, I know thy works and the last more than the, than the first. Talking about works. Twice he mentions works. This is in order to point out the, the high commendability uh, that he stows on this. Continued growth, continued development. They did not wax low or weak. They were known for their continued progress, increasing, growing. What a thrill that is to a pastor to see his people who uh, embrace the Lord and then begin to grow. And you begin to see the fruit buds coming out. By their fruit you shall know them, the scriptures tell us. And, and what a blessing that is to see uh, in the life of people who have been saved. They have works and more so now at the end. I wonder if you'll have that kind of a testimony. Uh, I wonder if your last state is better or worse than the first when you first believe. How is, how are, how is it going with you? Well, we leave now, you look at the next verses, verses 20 through 24, uh, contains the admonition uh, that he has uh, to this church. And let's just read it and then make some comments on it. Beginning back again in verse 20, notwithstanding, uh-oh, they had all these good things, six good things he mentioned, but... Notwithstanding, he says, I have a few things against thee. Now listen to what it is. Because thou hast suffered that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to, uh, unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her. 
unto great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in time of terror, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put no uh, upon you no other burden. Now let's look at this a little closer, this admonition. Things that he's upset with about them. You know, this church and the first church, Ephesus, is kind of a, a reverse one from the other. We remember when we looked at Ephesus, uh, they wouldn't tolerate evil. Uh, they, they wouldn't have uh, uh, any part of uh, uh, evil, but they were wanting in love. Their love was weakened. They left their first love. Now here in Thyatira, they were gaining in love, but they were tolerating evil. You know, we still have people like that today. Churches today have had two different kinds of people. You know, these types of churches are not only types of church in church history, but they are types of individual Christians. Uh, You can identify with one of these seven churches, very personal-like. And uh, there's some folks, you know, they're they're just lovey-doveys. They love everything but they don't stand for anything. And then there are some others, like that one I talked about a moment ago, old Krabby Tom, you know, <laughs> down at the mouth, as mean as a snake, and uh, they don't have any love. But they'll, they won't tolerate any evil either. Those kind of people are still around today. And there's people that we have to work with and have to uh, help to understand and help them out in their situation. Uh, seeking peaceful uh, uh, coexistence is what m- most Christians want to do. They want to be liked by everybody. But you can't do that and be a Christian. Now, you should be likable, you should be loving. But also, we need to know that we have no fellowship with darkness. We don't have any right to mingle with that which is wrong. We we do not have that right. And we have to separate when that happens. Now, historically, this woman Jezebel that is mentioned, perhaps you're familiar with the record in, in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16, and and some more information about her in chapter 19, but uh, we remember, perhaps you do, that she was married to uh, Israel's wicked king Ahab. Now, I didn't write down the name. Her daddy was a king, but he was a king of a heathen nation, and it seemed to be like it was Moab or something like that. And uh, she was his daughter, and they practiced 
uh, Baalism, and they uh, and, uh, and 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 they practice Baal uh, in their uh, worship. And she introduced this teaching into Israel. She even had it in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Ahab had let her have full reign. She had hundreds of prophets. You remember the story how Elijah contested the false prophets of Baal. And we say 400, but there's like uh, 800 and so of them uh, total. But uh, how they, uh, you know, did all their dancing around and hooping and hollering, trying to get fire from heaven. And, and uh, Elijah, he's, he's kind of like some of us independent Baptists. He's over there, holler a little louder. Maybe he's on a vacation. Holler, cry a little louder. Surely he'll hear you. But they went from morning to night. They didn't. He got up and spoke a few words and fire fell from heaven. You remember the story. But Jezebel got mad at him. And she set the preacher on the run. You read in chapter 19 where Elijah, the mighty prophet, wanted to die, but he's too much of a coward to commit suicide. He wanted God to kill him. Rolled up in his self-pity. Oh, I'm the only one left. You know? But that Jezebel is the type of person. This Jezebel in Thyatira wasn't the literal Jezebel. She'd been dead about a thousand years. But the demon that possessed her and controlled her was well much alive. They don't die, you know. They, they end up in eternal hell. They are eternal beings like you and I are eternal beings. Whether you're lost or saved, you are eternal being. You're going to spend heaven, uh, 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 you're going to spend eternity in either heaven or hell, but you're going to be. You'll never not be. You'll always be. And these demons are like that. And this demon, or a demon like that demon, uh, had a hold of a woman in the church here at Thyrathera. And uh, he was using her to influence uh, God's servants. And she called herself a prophetess, we read here. Modern day prophetess in our midst. When I was a young man, we had one in Pittsburgh. You may have read about her or heard about her, named Jeannie Dixon. And Jeannie Dixon was a self-professed prophetess prophetess and she was even right occasionally <laughs> but that's not a prophet a prophet in the Old Testament was right 100% of the time or they stoned him he didn't get a chance to make a mistake again but uh, these modern day prophetess uh, and pro prophets are not like that uh, they um, they claim to have received some uh, additional uh, uh, inspiration or revelation from God and uh, that God uh, touched them in a, in a certain way. Actually, they were really touching the deep things of Satan that's referenced here. That's what they were touching. Uh, others that we have that you perhaps 
uh, know of what they started more than what their name was, Mary Baker Patterson Eddy. She started a Christian science movement, neither Christian nor science. That's the craziest religion, and yet people believe that. She has all those names because she's married, I think, about five times. Isn't that something? And, and claiming to be a prophetess. Others, Mrs. Ellen G. White. You know who that is? That's the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist. You say, I didn't know they were a cult. Yes, they're a cult. They're not called a cult today, but things change today. You know, they even think of Mormons as being Christians, and they think of Jehovah's Witnesses as being Christians. I mean, you can be anything and be in Christendom. You'd say you're a Christian, and you belong to that group, but that's not God's group. You have Joseph Smith, who was the founder of Mormonism. Joseph Smith was a real shyster of a kid. You need to read his life story, what kind of a person he was. I should have picked up one of the stones in my yard and told you it was what he used to tell people, a peep stone. From up in Pennsylvania, they, they, they back with people up there, they, they thought they had special powers. They could get a, a certain stone, maybe a little one that you could see through the light. And they'd hold it up, and that was a peep stone, and that they could prophesy things. How do you think you got the Book of Mormons? You better study your Bible. Not your Bible, but your, your cult history. That's, that's the uh, young man, Joseph Smith. Charles Russell started the, seven day, uh, started the Jehovah's Witness. And, uh, and there's a host of others. Uh, they, there's no end to them believe that they're inspired, believe they can have additional revelation. We're going to read in Revelation when we get to the back of the end. You better not add to and you better not take from the Word of God. And a cult's going to do one or the other. A cult is either going to add to or take from. And you look at your cults and you'll see that to be true. All of them do one or the other. They either add to or take from. This is a, a church in the time of dark, the dark ages. You remember that now. The Bible says that holy men of God, holy men of God were used to write this blessed book. You don't find any women prophetess in here, self-professed prophetess. You don't find any riffraff that God uses to write his word. You don't find it. You better stick with the scriptures. The New Testament church is set forth in, this, in, the, in as a simile of a woman. You know, during this dark ages here where you have papal rule, this is the first time the, the popes really came into office. The first one was put into office during this time. And, and he was enthroned, and they were, he was to be addressed as Holy Father. 
That's what they call the Pope today. Holy Father. That church says a woman is put in the place of a man and uh, is, uh, is in a place of substitution for Christ. You pray to her, not to Christ. Uh, and uh, the scripture knows nothing about this. Again, you have to go back to 2000 B.C. to see anything like this garbage that they have, the offices and the positions they hold, are found in an ancient heathenism in ancient Babylon about 2000 B.C. Uh, Dr. Seiss had a book I, I used to have titled Two Babylons. And I, it's in reprint, so you might run across one. If you do, buy it and read it. It's a good study. And, and, and he talks about the two Babylons. The Babylon, ancient Babylon, and the new Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar during the day of Daniel. But they had a history that goes back to the Tower of Babel. If, if you know your Bible, you know that. And, uh, but here, uh, uh, the New Testament church is set forth as a simile, as a woman. The church is a woman. Set forth in that picture. She is the bride of Christ. Now think of that. She's the bride of Christ. And uh, you'll not find anywhere in scriptures where she's ever uh, uh, referred to like a man. And yet... The Catholic Church has a holy papa, a papa, a father, or whatever you call it, Pope. And the women in the Bible were never to usher authority over a man. They were, uh, they were not put in that position. They were in subjection to a man. And so the church is to be in subjection to Christ, not to some man or some religious practice. What am I getting to? Well, just stick with me. I'll, I'll show you. And, and Matthew 13, in that reference on your chart, I handed out. This is the parable of the leaven. The fourth parable, the fourth church here. The fourth parable given was the parable of the leaven. And it was a woman who put the leaven in the three loaves. You remember? And all the complete loaf becomes leaven because leaven works from within and corrupts from within. It's a danger. The real danger is the internal danger. And uh, judgment is prophesied upon uh, this uh, ecclesiasticism. Uh, we, we read here where they're going to go through the great tribulation. Pastor mentioned this, I think, Sunday uh, morning in his message. Uh, the the uh, part of his scriptures here tells us that this church, this uh, false church, Jezebel-type church, is, is not going to be raptured. This church goes right into the tribulation. This is the church... And our day of thinking today is your, your ecumenical movement where all the churches and all the religions are getting together. That's the heart church of Revelation. And, and that's, those people aren't saved. 
Only the saved are taken out at the rapture. These people go right on having church services, taking offerings and doing their little duties, whatever they do. And uh, it won't be any difference in the way they act. Uh, judgment is prophesied against these people. And uh, you read it there in verse 22. The real believers will be kept from the hour of tribulations. Uh, God will not allow us to go through that, but these folks will. The, the method of Jezebel was to teach and seduce my servants, it says. Rome claims, you know, to be the only church that cannot err in matters pertaining to faith and morals. They believe they're above error. They cannot make a mistake in matters of church dogma and in morals. And then in about 1700, they gave that uh, right to the Pope. And then after then, they said the Pope couldn't make any mistakes either. That's a bunch of hogwash. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's all men. All have sinned. And uh, there's no exceptions. So here we see uh, this, this uh, teaching here that, that, that they're going to teach and seduce my servants. And that's just what Rome does. They know, they know not, next to nothing about the scriptures. Not really. And by the way, they want to keep their people the same way. They know uh, that if they find out what the scriptures say, they'll have problems. And they do have problems when people get the scriptures in their own word and they can read it or have it taught to them in a way that they can understand or even having taught the scriptures because they don't teach the scriptures. They teach church dogma, church teachings, traditions, and so forth. But they don't know much of anything about the Bible. Bob Jones, a number of years, I think it was 1971, they come out with a film now, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Flame in the Wind or Flame, something like that. Anyhow, it's, it was a film that they made about the Spanish Inquisition, a good Christian film. In fact, our college had a, uh, the first showing of it, and used it as a fundraiser to replace the floor in the gymnasium in the college there. Uh, Dr. Noel Smith uh, on staff there was able to get uh, Dr. Bob Jones Jr. to give us the film to show in a private viewing. We had about 4,000 people to view the thing. And then later when I went to Finley, Ohio, I was interviewed with the radio station. They were The Christian groups there were bringing it into Finley, Ohio. And we were doing some uh, advertisement, advance notice and invitations given out for folks to come. But it was about the Spanish Inquisition, and the whole gist of the thing was this. People were being put to death because they were reading the Bible. Who was doing, who was doing the killing? The Catholic Church. The Catholics were killing anybody who had the Bible in a, in a, a language other than the Latin, and, and then uh, only in the, they weren't even allowed to have those. They were very restricted but had it in Latin. If you had it in another language, uh, that was punishable by death. 
and the Spanish Inquisition during those 1500s, they slaughtered thousands and tens of thousands of people because they read the Bible and they knew, knew what the Bible said. And, and I told you before that it was about 1100 or so AD when the Catholics had the Bible listed on a list of forbidden books, books that you were not allowed to have was the Bible. They don't want people to know the Bible. If you know the Bible, you're not going to follow that. You, you read about passages like this prophecy scriptures that was written back 95 A.D. about a future time during 600 to 1500 when the Pope were going to reign supreme and, and all these things were going to happen and a woman was going to be elevated in the place of Christ and, and, and they were going to have a holy father as the head of their church when the church is a mother. And it should have the characteristic of a mother. Thank God for women. Loving, nurturing. <laughs> That's what a church is supposed to be. And uh, I like that. And, and I gave her space, he says, to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. In verse 21, um, I, I taught years ago. I don't teach it anymore because... I found out I was uh, misled or pipe dreaming in the wrong direction or something. But, uh, you know, the Tower of Babel, where false religions have their beginning. All false religions. And they're all the same. You know what it is? They're all based on works. Salvation is grace. False teachings is works. Do something. you got to do something or not do something in order to get to be a Christian. That's not the Bible, but that's what what they teach. But uh, I, I uh, used to think, you know, that was back in the 70s and 70s, 60s, 70s, uh, the tongue movement was just like fire. I mean, they were speaking in tongues, jibber-jabbering everywhere you turned. Uh, us Baptists had the hardest time to keep it out of our churches, and some didn't. But it got in everywhere. Mormons, Muslims, didn't even have to be a Christian, speaking in tongues. That was the thing. That was a sign of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't say anything like that in the Bible. But that's what they had everybody believing. And I come up with a thought, you know, at the Tower of Babel, God used tongues to disperse. Wouldn't it be like the devil to use tongues to bring them all together? <laughs> but tongues have fell by the wayside. That's just about a thing of the past anymore. It's still observed by some, but not many. Uh, but he, she said, I gave them space to repent, but they wouldn't. Jezebel and history were told how that, you know, she was prophesied to have this bad, terrible death. And she went and hid up in an upstairs room and painted her face and tried to disguise herself, but she didn't fool anybody. They had her, a couple of her own followers to take her and throw her out the window. She hit the street, 
made a big splatter. Blood flied up on the wall. The dogs licked the blood. The, the, the king came in and trampled her bone, her body under the hoofs of her, his horse. And later he said, go out there and bury her. And they went out to bury her and there wasn't anything left but her hands, her feet, and her head. The dogs had ate everything that was left. She had a terrible death. And uh, you know, this Jezebel is going to have a terrible death also. She's in high glory today. She's going to be, I believe, one of the, if not the leader, one of the leaders of the world church, the false church, uh, in the time of the tribulation that we're going to read in 17 and 18 when we get there. But now the appeal, the appeal that is given. And Christ gives a, a very short appeal uh, it's, it's in several scriptures here, uh, but notice beginning in verse 25. But that which ye have already hold fast till I come. That's the appeal. Let's see, he says this, hold fast till I come. Hold fast. I, I like that. He says, I'm going to come. You see that? I'm He's talking now to his followers, those truthful people. And he that overcometh those truthful followers and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. I'm talking about the tribulation period in here. And it's and it talked about it a little bit before as well, but that holding uh, fast to the end and so forth. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That's the millennial reign of Christ. He'll reign with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. That's a beautiful thought. The morning star is Christ, by the way. And... Uh, if I have time, I want to read Second Peter chapter 1 and uh, verse uh, number, uh, well, beginning in verse 19. Uh, 2 Peter, if you want to turn there, I'll read it to you. My hand shakes so bad, I can't hardly turn a page of, of scriptures. And if I let something go to grab something else, they all fall apart. Here we go. Chapter 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, referring to the scriptures, whereby ye do well that ye take heed as unto the light that shineth in the dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That's Jesus. He's coming again. Knowing this first, notice verse 20. That no prophecy is of, uh, of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, by the false teachers, the false prophetess and so forth. How did they come? They came by the holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's how we get the scriptures. I thank God he's coming again. I thank God that uh, one of the things we're told in 1 John 2, 28, that, he's, that he wants us to be looking for his coming, loving his coming and looking for his coming. 
back in the 70s and graduated from college in 72. And even before then, a few years before then, there was a great movement in this country in teaching on prophecy. Prophecy was preached on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible studies, Bible conferences over and over again. And uh, I didn't mind that. I think sometimes you can get on a hobby horse. There's other things other than prophecy, but prophecy is a good subject. And by the way, prophecy is the thermometer by which you regulate the the, 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 uh, heat or the the, uh, fire in the Christian. If he doesn't know his prophecy, he's not going to be that strong a Christian. If he has a good understanding and a firm belief in prophetic matters, he's going to be strong. And I'm getting to this in closing. They used to have some hymns that we used to sing at the beginning of the services. One of them we still sing today. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. What a beautiful song it is. I love that song. But here's another one that you don't hear today, and I wish we did. Maybe some of the folks in the music will look it up and lead us in it. It's a good course. It's simply titled, Coming Again. And they would sing, Coming Again. Coming again, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, but it will be soon. Hey, those kind of songs will get you in the right spirit. They'll get your mind on the things that will encourage your heart. This church of Thyatira is a church that affects your life today more than you know. Roman Catholicism still has an awful firm grip. Now we're going to see in a couple of churches, Sardis and then Philadelphia and then Laodicea, we're not done with the study in the churches. We're going to see a time of the Reformation and you say Reformation, boy that was great. Yeah, that was good. But I wouldn't say it was great. The reason it wasn't great is the people from the Reformation are those who were coming out of the Catholic Church. Martin Luther, he didn't leave. They threw him out. John Calvin, those those great religious leaders that you think about who formed these Protestant churches, Protestant meaning protest to the Catholics. You say, you know, Catholic, uh, Baptists, by the way, are not Protestant. We'll handle that when we get to that lesson. But listen, they come out. It was good. The Wesleys, so forth, out of the Methodists. Uh, there were some great, great churches, but they weren't great as you think they were because they didn't come all the way out.